we're in this series, and I get to continue on in this series this morning called Life at the Lake, and um, uh, coming out of the book of Mark, a number of uh, events that Jesus had with his uh, people, the people that were following him, interactions that he had with them, uh, all centered around the Sea of Galilee. Or a lake. We might call that a lake. And, and lake life was super important to the people in Jesus' day. So much of the commerce, so much of the, uh, the, the life, so much revolved around the necessity for a lake. When I moved here three years ago, we moved from a bizarre state called uh, California. And uh, when I got here, uh, that's one thing that is true of Michigan as well. That Michigan, folks from Michigan, summer in particular, life highly revolves around the lake. Fair enough? I I guess when you live in a state where it's always the same temperature, you can go places whenever you want. But in Michigan, like the lake really shapes so much of life. And so uh, culture had to learn that, kind of adapting that. And it's interesting because that, I think, is so similar to Jesus in his day, this concept of how important lake life is. And, and, and so uh, the, the lake, if you've ever been to the lake, you've ever done, uh, I don't want to say done time at the lake, that sounds like a jail thing, but if you've ever done vacation at the lake or spent, you know, when you get up in the morning, you're at the lake and like work is over there, it's behind you and, and you're at the lake and you've decompressed for a day or two and, and you wake up in the morning maybe early and you're going to read a book or read some Bible or pray a little bit and you're sitting out on that deck and you're overlooking the water and the sun is coming up. Are you, are you with me a little bit? And you just have that sense of like, this is powerful. You know, like maybe, maybe this is what I'm meant for. I'm going to quit everything and just live at the, the lake. Well, I think Jesus kind of understood the reality of, of the power of being out with his guys and people around a lake. And so he has these interactions with them at the lake that are so powerful and so important. And that's the series that we're in. Life at the Lake. And today we're going to drop into another episode uh, with Jesus. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. So if you want to find that, that would be great. But, but let me just start while you're doing that. Let me start by reviewing a little bit from last week. Our, our lead pastor, Rick Rubel, talked about this problem last week of legalism. And legalism, really this idea of, of taking um, things that I should apply to myself, that I want to apply to myself, but then putting it on everybody else. So I think I should be doing a certain thing or, or, or not doing a certain thing. And then I begin to think that everybody else should be doing that thing as well or not doing that thing. And because you're not doing that thing, you're not as spiritual as I am. Legalism. Tracking with me, right? Legalism. And legalism is a problem. Matter of fact, it was a problem in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, so very often got caught up in this issue of legalism. So most of the interactions that Jesus has between those people uh, tend to clash because Jesus has an issue with legalism. He's not really a fan of it. And the Pharisees were kind of a fan of legalism, usually because it was their standard that they were putting on everybody else. And so Rick last week talked about this problem of legalism. Matter of fact, he ended with these four uh, ways, four ideas of how to not uh, fall into legalism. He said, number one, uh, study the Bible to know the heart of God yourself. Don't just rely on what you hear on Sunday mornings or what you hear on a CD or a tape or YouTube. Or I said, I said, said a tape. Isn't that funny? 
I don't even know what that, what that means. But anyways, don't rely on what other people say, but, but study it for yourself. Know God's heart for yourself. The second thing that he said was this idea of apply then those principles into your life. Like apply those principles into your life. And then he said the third thing, don't make applications for your life universal to everybody else's life. That's the strict definition of legalism. Right? It's not bad to apply certain things to you. You have these rules that I am not going to be part of. That's great. But when I apply it to someone else, that becomes legalism. And fourthly, he said, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not just the set of rules. That's kind of where we uh, ended last week, this idea of legalism. And legalism, the the issue that, that Rick talked about, is really one half of a frame And this week, we'll finish the other half of the frame. And a picture frame, you're seeing it behind me, a picture frame, uh, I mean, it would be crazy to just try and take one half and hang a picture, right? I mean, I kind of want to ask the question, has anybody tried that? No, nobody, right? It would be crazy, right? It wouldn't hold the picture. You can't get it to stick to the wall. So for a frame to work, you need both sides of it. That's how it's designed. And I think the issue that Rick tackled last week and then the issue that we get to talk about today is really two sides of a frame. And so vital that we get both of them. Okay, that's the review. Now I want to confess something to you. So often in my own life, it's funny isn't the right word, but I don't have another adjective right now. Uh, it's funny how uh, the things that I'm reading and the things that I'm kind of personally struggling through, God seems to push those together and then make me talk about them at some point. I don't like that because when I say it up front, now I have to do it, right? So I'm just being honest with you. This is not designed by anybody other than God to, to talk about these things. And, and it's interesting because I'm reading this book uh, called The Hole in Our Holiness. And I've read it before. I'm reading it again. Uh, and this guy named Kevin DeYoung, pastor, author, he, he says we have a hole in our holiness. A holiness being this idea of uh, living out your righteousness, right? Living in, in ways that please Jesus. Li- living right. Are you with me? You're making sense, right? He says there's a hole in our holiness. This is, this is what he says about that. He says, the whole is that we really don't care very much about it. And, and then he goes on to answer for a few chapters the why. Well, why is that? And he says, well, passion for it might make you look antiquated or a culture of cool pushes against it or it feels judgmental or frankly, it's just plain hard work. So we tend to not care about living holy. And then he goes on to describe what holiness is not. He says it's not mere rule keeping. It's not uh, generational imitation. You know, like, remember the good old days when it was more spiritual? <laughs> you know, to be honest, it was probably never more spiritual. Right? And then he says it's not just a generic spirituality. Living holy doesn't just mean living this generic spirituality. He goes on to finish the book with what it then looks like. What does holiness look like? And he says these things. He says it's a renewal of God's image, in particular in in me. He says it's a life marked by virtue instead of vice. He says it results in a clear conscience. He says it's living Christ-likeness. And then he says it's obedience to God's demands. And that last sentence there, is where we're going to land this morning. Matter of fact, the way De Young describes that last sentence, this concept of obedience to God, this is what De Young says about that. I'm, I'm blaming Kevin so that you can get on Kevin later. Fair enough? You can send Kevin emails. 
But, I'm, but I'll be honest, I, I think I agree wholeheartedly with him. This is what he says. <clears throat> Sounds really spiritual to say God is interested in relationship, not in rules. But it's not biblical. From top to bottom, the Bible is full of commands. I mean, they, they, they aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God, but to protect it, seal it, and define it. We can talk all day about our love for God, but if we do not keep his commands, we are liars and the truth is not in us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to North Point this morning. We're going to talk happy thoughts, happy things. He's quoting First John there when he says, we can talk all day about our love for God, but if we don't do what he says, we're liars. So the truth is not in us. I think I agree with the young. It's become fashionable and, and very um, faddish to say that God's not about rules, he's about relationship. I think I agree with DeYoung when he says, you have a hard time reading the Bible and landing only on that sentence. There's certainly truth to that sentence, and I don't want to minimize that, but if that's all the sentence, it's hard to read the Bible and really come away from that. So much of God's history with his people is wrapped up in commands and expectations and rules, and so often when his people blow it and end up in bad, bad places, it's simply because they didn't obey. And I think that that's true today as well. So, in 20 minutes, I'm going to land in the same sentence that I'm going to say right now. But for you guys that have a hard time paying attention for that long, this is the end, okay? It's fair enough. If you want a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus, you have to obey him. If you want a deep, intimate, lasting relationship with Jesus, you have to obey him. That's where we're going to go in Mark chapter 3. I think Jesus says that. Here's my problem. I don't really do obedience very well. I, I don't really like obedience. I don't like being told what to do if I'm just really truthful with you. I don't like being told what to do. Uh, sometimes I'm okay with obedience like sometimes a family member or a boss or someone says, hey, I need you to do this. And I say, oh, okay, no problem. And I obey. But then there's other times where I'm like, <laughs> and it's usually because the thing that, that they want me to do clashes with what I want to do. Sometimes I'm okay with obedience. Uh, and sometimes I have a real obedience problem. So, so for example, like when I get in my car in the morning and I pull out of my driveway and I start to head down my street, I have no problem driving on the right side of the road. Like zero problem. I totally obey that. No problem whatsoever. And uh, the fact that, you know, I'm supposed to put my seatbelt on, you know, when I do that, I have no problem obeying that. So I get in my car, put my seatbelt on, I drive on the right side of the road. No problem. I'm obeying. But then when I get to Webb, and it goes from 35 to 25. All of a sudden, I have an obedience problem. I'm confessing this to you. Some of you are chuckling, and I'm thinking maybe you're with me on this. Right? I'll drive down to Detroit. I'll drive down to Canton, and I'm on the 96, right? which I think is the name of the highway and the speed limit. 96. <laughs> I read the sign that says 70, and, and I'm, I'm having an obedience problem. Not only because 70 is... Stupid. But, because people, they're flying by me, right? Well, if they can't, I can't. I have an obedience problem. 
I don't, I don't have a problem. Uh, I obey. Jesus says, uh, you know, you should be kind to people. And so I'm, I'm, I can be kind to people until I meet that jerk. Oh, Jesus. I Him too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have an obedience problem. Are, are, we, are we together on this? Do we do, okay, good, I was hoping that I wouldn't be the only one who struggled with this concept of an obedience problem. And it's usually when what I want to do clashes with what I'm being asked to do. Now I have an obedience problem. And a few seconds ago I said the sentence, if you're going to have a deep, abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus, then you have to obey him. And so we drop into the story. Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse oh, thir- 31. Jesus has been doing a bunch of uh, stuff. He's building a reputation for himself, just kind of so you know the setting of what's going on before we drop into the middle of an event. Jesus has been healing people. Uh, he's building this reputation. People know that he's a healer. Jesus has been uh, getting in these conversations and been doing these teachings where the average person is like, wow, that guy teaches with authority. That's, that's different than what we're used to. Jesus has been getting into these um, conversations or, or arguments with like the super important religious leaders and, and it seems that Jesus always wins those, which was new for the average person listening to that. Jesus is getting the better of these guys. And so people are showing up wherever Jesus is because while he heals people, maybe it'll be a good show. Maybe he's going to heal with someone. Maybe he's going to argue with someone. That Pharisee, Timmy, man, he drives me nuts. So maybe Jesus is going to take him down. People show up whenever Jesus is there. So Jesus is building this reputation. People show up when he's around. Jesus, before we read this, Jesus just picked the, his 12 uh, followers. He's had people that's been following him around for a while. And Jesus just landed on the 12 that are going to be closest to him. He said, I want you and you and you and you. You guys, we're going we're gonna to really do this together. And they said, yeah, we're all in. And so he's got these closest followers. Still some groups that follow, bigger groups. But he's got 12 closest. He just picked them by name. And so they're his, like, they're his guys. They're his right-hand men or however you want to put that. Jesus just picked his 12. Jesus goes home. Now, Jesus probably at this point maybe doesn't live in one particular place. My, my kids and I were having this conversation last week. They're like, where did Jesus live? You know, like after he was like baby, Mary, house, some years past, carpenter, and then like now he's this teacher, rabbi guy. Where did he live during that time? And, and I, th- I think, I might be wrong, but I think the answer is kind of like everywhere or, or nowhere. I think he just kind of lived with where he was, the, the the phrase I used this morning because teenagers were sitting over here was couch surfing because they, they kind of get that idea. But I think the idea, he just, he relied on his friends and spent time with them, but he had a hometown, Nazareth, and he had his folks home there. And I think this episode, he goes home. I don't know if he's in his, he, he's probably not in his mom's home, but he's certainly in a home in his hometown. Does that make sense? I use the word home a lot there. I'm trying to think in my head. That makes sense. He's in a home in his hometown, the people that probably know him the closest. And so here we go. This group has built outside the house. Jesus showed up to the house to have a meal and people are coming as 12 are probably closest and then if you can picture these layers of people that keep piling into this place and these layers of people go out the door and there's more layers of people and there's just this huge group that have shown up to see like what's Jesus going to do is he going to heal somebody is he going to have an argument is he going to blow up I don't know it's so cool you know maybe he'll make more fish it's great I just want to see this and so all these people show up all that to say here we go verse 31 are you with me Mark chapter 3 
It says in verse 31, And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. I've got I to gotta pause you right there. It would be easy to gloss over this sentence, but I think it sets up kind of what's going to happen next, in that Jesus' mother and brothers show up, and they're probably last to this event, so they're way outside the door. And so they tap someone's shoulder, and they go, Hey, uh, tell, them, tell them Jesus is here. Uh, tell, tell him Jesus' mom and dad or mom and brothers and sisters are here. Tell him his family's here. Can you get Jesus for us? I was thinking in my head a, a second ago that if this was contemporary today, you, you probably would have sent him a text. That's how a lot of my parents pick up kids from youth group, right? You don't come in anymore. You just get in the car, you know? And so parents, Jesus' mom and his brothers are like, hey, tell Jesus that we're here. And so that, that memo passes up the line until you get to the people that are closest to Jesus and they go, oh, uh, hey, Jesus, like mom's here. Mom's here, mom wants you, she's, she, mom's outside, she wants you, and your brothers, they're outside, they want you. Okay, so, so check this out, I want to back up for a second, look why they were there in verse 20, still Mark chapter 3, but verse 20, I want you to see why they were there, because this is crazy. It says in verse 20, uh, then Jesus went uh, home, again to his hometown most likely, and the crowd gathered again, that's what we just said, so that they could not even eat, we just said that, and, and when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. This is Jesus' family. Says, oh, Jesus is back again. We better go get him. He's crazy. He's saying these things. He's doing these things. We got to go grab him. And so the family shows up to this event where Jesus is at. And they tap shoulders and they say, hey, tell Jesus we're out here. And that moves up the line. Jesus, your, your mom's, she wants you. She's outside. You got you to gotta go. Right? And Jesus uses that very simple, small event to make a very huge point. This is what he says back into verse 31. His mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and they called him and the crowd was sitting around him, Jesus, and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, now knowing that his family already was concerned about his mental state or whatever. They're already concerned about what he was doing to the extent that they were going to go get him. This seems like a very odd question to ask. Who's, who's my mother, you know? And then he follows it up with the point. Who are my mothers and brothers? And he looks about at those who sat around because everybody got really quiet going, oh man. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, whoever does God's will, that's my mom and my brothers and my sisters. Now, I think the point that Jesus is making here is this idea of family. The, the, the fact that your mom and your brothers and your sisters uh, should be the closest, most intimate relationships you have. Like, your family are the people that have your back no matter what. Your family are the people that you can share anything with no matter what. You share your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your hurts and they love you even when you're crazy, Right? Now, I would be honest that I know that in our, in our world today, that is not always that way. That family is, is very often broken and, and messed up. And, and, and we have family situations where that is not the case and that they do not care for each other that way and they are distrusted. And, and I, like I recognize all of that. But if we could imagine a perfect world, family would be what I just described, the closest people in your life. 
the people who love you and trust you and hope the best for you no matter what. Are we on the same page with that? In a perfect world, that's what family would look like. The most intimate, close relationships you have are in your family. And Jesus says, who's my family? Who do I have the most intimate, close, tight relationships with? People that obey God. The people that obey God. That's who my family is. Very simple episode in Jesus' life. Hey, your mom's here. Turned into a very large point. And it's interesting because it's not the only time Jesus makes this point. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 7, I'd love you to do this. That way you can see that I'm not making this up, but it's really there. Matthew chapter 7 says the only time that Jesus says uh, obeying God, that's what brings you into this, or or that's who my mother and my brothers are, this idea of obeying God, how important that is. Matter of fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus is at the end of a really, really long um, talk that he gives, a sermon. Typically when Jesus spoke, he did it through questions or he did it through stories and parables, but there's a few instances, one, two, maybe three, where Jesus gave what we might call a sermon, a longer talk, and that's what Matthew 5, 6, 7 is all about. It's recorded in there, and Jesus is using in this talk this concept of contrast. This or this. This or that. So this idea of two opposing things. One being better, one being eh. And so Jesus is constantly pushing this idea in this talk. He says things like, you know, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. But I'm telling you, if you get, if you get angry in your head and you hate in your head, it's like, it's, this, so, it's so same, so similar. So you're like, I, I, you've heard it say you shouldn't kill someone, but if you're super angry with them, it, it's similar. He, he says, you, you've heard it said that you shouldn't have adultery. You shouldn't have sex with somebody that's not your spouse. He says, but, but I tell you if, you, just, if you just think about that in your head, it's so, so similar. It's like the same. It's both. Like, you've been told don't have affairs, but, but I'm telling you, if, you just, if you're thinking it in your head, it's so so similar, he says, you know, you, you've heard it said, uh, appropriate response retaliation. If, if they do uh, to you, then you do uh, to them, and that's how it's supposed to be. You don't, you don't do, uh, uh. are you with me? <laughs> you like the hand motions? You don't, it's just re- appropriate retaliation. You've heard that said. But I'm telling you, what wins the day is, is grace and mercy. Like Jesus says, it's different. Like you've heard it said, but I say. And he begins to finish that talk with this concept of, of two roads. Like, like lots of people are on this wide, broad road. It leads to destruction. It's kind of where most people fall by default. And maybe they're trying to do it on their own. And we, I've used the term before, like, like self-serve religion. He says, but, but I'm telling you, it's the narrow road. It's I am the way and the truth and the life. I I am the gate. It's a narrow road that leads to life. And so a contrast. And Jesus says all of that to get to this point that I want you to see today in in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. He says, everyone then, he's concluding all these thoughts that he's thrown out there. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus tells a simple story. People who hear my words and do them are wise. 
people who hear my words and do not obey, do not do them, are, the Bible uses the word foolish. Sometimes our translations kind of sanitize words because it's easier for us to stomach, but the word there literally could be translated stupid. And I know we're probably not allowed to use that word many places, like, but, but that's really what Jesus is saying. Like, like people who hear and don't do, they're fools, are fools. And so Matthew got this so clearly, one of Jesus' disciples, and those guys very often were like thick-headed. It took them a lot to get stuff sometimes. He got it so much that he was sure that it was, it was written down in the, in, the, in the book that he penned. Matter of fact, if you uh, flip over to James, I want you to see this too if you can find that. James chapter 1. James is interesting. He, he seems to get this idea as well. But, but James, different story. James, uh, brother of Jesus here. Matter of fact, very possibly one of the guys who went with mom to pull Jesus out of the house because they were concerned about what he was thinking. Like, oh man, he's at it again. Let's get him and take him home. Right? That's this James. James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was uh, during Jesus' lifetime. Which, don't, I mean, I, I kind of say don't knock James for that because like, could you imagine if, you're, if your little brother or if your uh, big brother was like, yeah, I'm God. <laughs> And you're just like, you're the little brother, and you're like, ah, he just takes my toys, or, you know, whatever. So, so it's not all that crazy that James would have been like, ah, he's just my big brother. I don't know what's wrong with him. But, but after Jesus died and rose again, he appeared to James, and then James is like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm in. I get it. Right? I mean, that makes sense. So James, who probably didn't believe in Jesus during Jesus' uh, Jesus's lifetime on earth, probably fully bought in uh, after Jesus uh, appeared to him after resurrection, kind of a for sure thing. James understood this idea in chapter 1, verse 22. It was such a big deal to Jesus, this idea of obeying God. Even James got it. Look at verse 22. This is how James puts it. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror before he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. That's kind of stupid, right? Like, like if you get up in the morning and you have... Um, morning face <laughs> morning face on you stuff here and you know whatever and you get in the bathroom and you stumble in there and you look in the mirror and you're like whoa gotta take care of that and then you go down to reach your toothbrush and you completely forget that you look like that and you just walk out into your day we'd ask the question what's wrong with that person right that's what James is describing here a person that is a hearer of the word and not a doer is just what's up with that person And then he goes on in verse 25 to to describe the other side. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says, The person who hears and does, there's blessing in that. And then James goes on to describe what that looks like. In case there was any question at all, this is what he says in verse 26. He says, If anybody thinks that he is religious, I'm very religious, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James got it. 
He understood Jesus' heart in this concept of obeying. To the extent that he said, you want to know what kind of religion? I like the way the message puts it. It says it passes muster before God. Or maybe if I were, uh, maybe I'd say something like, if we could use human terms, it really makes God sit up and take notice. What kind of religion is that? It's caring for people that can't care for themselves and not being just like the world. Pretty simple, right? Obeying Jesus, obeying God, James got it, Matthew got it. These guys got this concept. Jesus was so clear about it. And not only did they get it, not only did they give their lives up for it, but they made sure that it got into the things that they wrote so that we could get it too. What's the point? A few minutes ago I said, I'm going to come back to this sentence. What's the point? So what? The point is, I think, Jesus is saying, People that are in intimate, close relationship with me, those are the people that obey the things that I say. So let me say it like this. If you want a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus, you've got to obey him. You've got to do the things that he says. And the challenge for me, for us, is that sometimes we have an obedience problem. I'm great obeying Jesus when the things that he wants me to do are the same things that I want to do. I'm really good at it. And you're really good at it too, my guess. But when the things that he wants me to do clashes with the things that I want to do, I really struggle to be good at this obeying thing. And then Jesus says something like, well, you want to have a close, intimate relationship with me, Chris? Like, that's what you want? Then you've got to obey me. And I go, but that too? Yeah, that too. <laughs> Because at my core, I think, I do have an obedience problem. But only when it clashes with what I want. And it's interesting because Jesus said this so often. His guys got it. They put it into their writings. But even at the end of Jesus' life, in the book of John, and I know I'm bouncing you around a little bit, but John chapter 14, maybe you would just mark this for sure. I'd love you to read these chapters later. I just want to read a couple of verses with you. But, but I think this is so important because at the end of Jesus' life, like he knows the next day, in the next few hours, he, he, there's an arrest that's coming. There's a, a beating that's coming. There's a death that's coming. He knows that these are the last times that he will spend with his closest friends and family on earth. This is it. These are the last words that he's going to say to them. Those are going to be important words, right? Like you're going you're gonna to give just the important stuff, not just blabber on, but you're going to, important words. This is what Jesus says in John 14. John got it so much, he wrote it down. Starting in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So simple to say. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And and then over in verse 23, Jesus continues on with this idea. He says, he answers him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come into him and, and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Kevin DeYoung says, we could talk all day about how much I love Jesus. If I don't obey him, I'm a liar. The truth isn't in me. I agree with that. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commands. And if you don't, I think you struggle to love me. And then in chapter 15, as Jesus continues on with this idea down in verse 14, John chapter 15, verse 14, he says this, 
He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us friends, because friends do what he commands. If I want to be in an intimate, close, deep relationship with Jesus, do what he commands. So often I've used the phrase, and, and people have used the phrase with me, my spiritual life is so dry. It's so dry right now. What I, what I sometimes hear uh, from students, and adults would never say this, but students do because they don't know. They shouldn't say it yet. They say, I don't know, this whole relationship thing with Jesus is really boring. I don't know, I guess, maybe can I respond with, well, do you obey him? Do you do the things that he tells you to do? Because I, I don't think if you're doing the things that Jesus is telling you to do, that this adventure with him is going to be boring. Because it wasn't for his guys. They all had crazy, insane, insane lives. Paul was running for his life half the time because he was doing the things that Jesus told him to do. It might be terrifying. I'm, I'm up for that. Like, I mean, I hear that. I'm not up for that, but I hear that. But it's certainly not boring, Right? I mean, imagine running around with Jesus for three years on the planet. I don't think any of his guys, the 12 or the 120 that were following or the 1,000 that kept showing up, ever said, holy spiritual life is dry with you, Jesus. This this whole camping thing's been cool, but I don't know. know, I'm going to go fish, right? After Jesus dies and they don't know what to do and Peter goes back to fishing because he's just kind of lost, but I don't think he was bored. These guys weren't bored because they were doing the things that Jesus told them to do. Lots, lots of counseling, Christian counseling. It's really wrapped up in this question. Are are you doing the things that Jesus has asked you to do? And some of those things are really clear because they're in the scriptures. And some of those things are maybe a little harder because we've got to figure them out. Sometimes God calls us to do specific things, be in specific places, work specific jobs, act in certain ways, connect with certain people. And those might be a little harder to fish out. Jesus says, you want to have a close, intimate, abiding relationship with me? Then obey the things that I've said. And Jesus doesn't tell us to obey him because he's some kind of dictator. He doesn't tell us that we've got to obey him because he's really into rules. Jesus was not about rules or just being into rules for the sake of being rules, but Jesus simply knows best how life should be lived. Jesus says, live life this way, this, this, this way that I've designed, because it is to your best interest to do that. Jesus says, you know what I want for you? I want you to have full, abundant, awesome, adventurous lives. And the way you do that is in a relationship with me, obeying the things that I have told you to do. It's not because Jesus is super into rules. It's not because Jesus is a dictator. It's simply because Jesus knows how best life ought to be lived. I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about this, this analogy. I was thinking, uh, if Vincent Van Gogh, it's one of my, this is my, one of my favorite paintings, is Starry Night. If, if Vincent Van Gogh had said, hey, Chris, um, this is my painting, Starry Night, you know, it's best viewed in a low light situation. Like, you really want it to be low light. And I said, you know, Vincent, that's cool, but I want full lights on. I want it to be as bright as possible because I think that's going to be better. It would be kind of nutty, right? It wouldn't do that. The guy painted it. He knows best how it's supposed to be viewed or or if lebron james lebron james says uh hey chris here's the best place to sit in uh cavalier stadium uh, quicken loans arena right here's the best place to sit to watch me play i guarantee best game experience you've ever had will be had by you sitting right there 
And I go, LeBron, that's cool, but you know what? I'm going to sit way in the back because the higher value is me getting out uh, earlier. Like, I want to get out on time. I want to get out quick. So that's the higher value. I hear you, but I just don't believe you. <laughs> I think I'll have a better view. I can see the jumbotrons. It's cool. Like, I'll just watch you on the jumbotron. It'll be cool. That's, that's goofy, right? Or if uh, George R. R. Martin, the guy that wrote uh, Game of Thrones, if, if he said, hey, the character of Eddard Stark, Ned Stark, uh, he, his voice, the voice has to be cast, Chris, as this really rough and tumble English bad dude, <laughs> right? That's who you got to cast for that character. And I'm like, no, you know, I really think it'd be better coming out sounding like Mickey Mouse. Like, that'd be way better. How, how dumb would I be? These, these, these people have created, artists, athletes, authors have created this content. They know what they had in their head when they did it. They know how it's supposed to sound and look and feel. And so if they said, hey, you really want to view it, experience it, do it this way, I would say, okay, okay, yeah, I'll do that, LeBron. I'll sit there, right? Simple. And yet we do this, I do this, we do this. To Jesus so often, Jesus knows how life is to best be lived because he created it, he authored it. He said, Chris, this is how I want you to live because this is the most adventurous life you could possibly ever have and I want you to live it that way. And I'm so challenged with this concept. I'm so challenged with the fact that very often I choose to live it a different way. We're going to finish up with a song. It's interesting as as I was looking this week to see kind of what songs were picked, and I think God has his hand on how all this stuff dovetails together. As much as a book that I'm reading flushes into what I have to get to talk about, and uh, and the band has some songs. The song we're going to finish with is this song, and you probably know it's called uh, Called Me Higher, but but I don't know if you've ever really looked at the words. This is This is how it reads. It says, I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, Hope to feel your presence. I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you. I could just hold on to who I am. Never let you change me from the inside. I could be safe here in your arms. Never leave home. Like I could be. I could just rest in you, Jesus. I could just be with you. I could just rest here. I could just stay. I could just. I could just. And there's this moment in the song when, when it turns and it's this, this phrase, but... But, it goes on to say, you have called me higher. You have called me deeper. Like, Jesus wants so much more for me and for us than to could just. Jesus says, I'm asking you to obey, not because I'm into rules, but because I'm into right living and I want you to live it so well. And so this song, as we sing it, I want you to hear the words. It's a song of commitment. It's really a song of obedience. It's really a song, and the last line of that says, and I will go where you lead me, Lord. I'll obey you. I'm going to do it the way you've told me to do it. Even though I'm a jerk and I struggle with obedience at times, Jesus, keep pushing me. Keep calling me. Because I don't want to just could or could just. Like, I want to be higher and deeper. I want this intimate relationship with you, Jesus. I want to live this adventure with you. Jesus says, obey me. I say, okay, I'll try. So we're going to sing a song. We often do this here as just kind of a response. And I just want to say, this place is yours to do what you want with. 
If you thinking through this concept is better standing and singing than do it. And if you thinking through this concept is better you sitting and just kind of trying to figure this out than do it. If it works better to be here and on your knees or standing or awesome. If you have to get out and go hide in a bathroom stall to think about this, that's great. I really just want this to be your time. You do what you want with this room as we just respond to what I think the Holy Spirit is doing through his word. Fair enough? Amen.